Underclass podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society, launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. Edward Bernays, nephew of Sigmund Freud, was considered a pioneer in the field of public relations and propaganda, and is even referred to in his obituary as the father of public relations. Some of his best-known campaigns include a 1929 effort to promote female smoking by branding cigarettes as feminist torches of freedom, and his work for the United Fruit Company in the 1950s connected with the CIA-orchestrated overthrow of the democratically elected Guatemalan government in 1954. In his 1928 book, Propaganda, Bernays explains his perspective by describing the importance of maintaining systematic control over the general public, stating that, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed. Our ideas suggested. Largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. Mark Bernays Randolph has been described as a serial entrepreneur and was the co-founder of Netflix, subsequently serving as the company's first CEO. He just so happened to call the father of propaganda, Edward Bernays, his great-uncle, but I'm sure we're intended to believe this is merely a coincidence. The words of Bernays to this very day evoke a vivid impression of our current paradigm, exposing the modern incarnation of deliberate deception and subterfuge. He wrote that, in place of thoughts, it has impulses, habits, and emotions. Universal literacy was supposed to educate the common man to control his environment. Once he could read and write, he would have a mind fit to rule, so ran the democratic doctrine. But instead of a mind, universal literacy has given him rubber stamps. Rubber stamps inked with advertising slogans, with editorials, with published scientific data with the trivialities of the tabloids and the platitudes of history, but quite innocent of original thought. Each man's rubber stamps are the duplicates of millions of others, so that when those millions are exposed to the same stimuli, all receive identical imprints. It may seem an exaggeration to say that the American public gets most of its ideas in this wholesale fashion. The mechanism by which ideas are disseminated on a large scale is propaganda, in the broad sense of an organized effort to spread a particular belief or doctrine. There are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. It is not generally realized to what extent the words and actions of our most influential public men are dictated by shrewd persons operating behind the scenes. Today we root out the destructive nature of collectivism and group dynamics, exposing the power elite socially structuring society through tax-exempt foundations, funding authoritarian and collectivist ideologies. Collectivism in any form is inherently opposed to individualism, elevating the rights of any given group over the rights of the individual, 
in many forms at the expense of the individual, resulting in the tyranny of the majority. Collectivism is authoritarianism, disguised by virtuous rhetoric, intelligent manipulation, and drenched in hollow platitudes. It's time we appreciate the concept of self-ownership and reclaim our independence from this unseen mechanism of society. Our story begins with the foundation of a private organization that's been touted as benevolent and altruistic called the General Education Board. The board was created in 1902 after John D. Rockefeller donated an initial million dollars to its cause, eventually giving over $180 million to fund the General Education Board, which by 1934 was reportedly making grants of $5.5 million a year before ceasing to operate as a separate entity in 1960 when its programs were subsumed into the Rockefeller Foundation. The intention was to use education as a tool in order to condition and mold the public toward embracing a modern form of collectivism, funding many different initiatives promoting this worldview. Similar organizations such as the National Education Association and the Progressive Education Association were formed with prominent funding and connections to the General Education Board and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, with aims of indoctrinating American children into the emerging age of collectivism. In April of 1952, the House Select Committee to Investigate Tax-Exempt Foundations and Comparable Organizations was created during the 82nd Congress, later referred to as the Reese Committee, named after Congressman Carol Reese, who became chairman of the investigative committee by April of 1954. The Reese Committee mounted a comprehensive inquiry into both the motives for establishing foundations and their influence on public life, naming former banker and financial advisor Norman Dodd as chief investigator for the committee in 1953. According to Dodd, grants toward education given specifically by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace were directing education in the United States toward an international viewpoint and discrediting the traditions to which the United States had formerly been dedicated. He submitted a final report to the Reese Committee on Foundations known as the Dodd Report, in which he gave a definition of the word subversive saying that the term referred to any action having as its purpose the alteration of either the principle or the form of the United States government by other than constitutional means. He then argued that the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and Carnegie Endowment were using funds excessively on projects at Columbia, Harvard, University of Chicago, and the University of California in order to enable oligarchical collectivism. Dodd stated that his research staff had discovered that from 1933 to 1936, a change took place which was so drastic as to constitute a revolution. They also indicated conclusively that the responsibility for the economic welfare of the American people had been transferred heavily to the executive branch of the federal government that a corresponding change in education had taken place from an impetus outside of the local community, and that this revolution had occurred without violence and with the full consent of an overwhelming majority of the electorate. He claimed that this revolution could not have occurred peacefully or with the consent of the majority unless education in the United States had been prepared in advance to endorse it. Frederick Taylor Gates was the principal business and philanthropic advisor to the major oil industrialist John D. Rockefeller Sr. from 1891 to 1923, and according to the New York Times, when he ceased being a business advisor to Rockefeller in 1912, Gates continued to advise him and his son John D. Rockefeller Jr. on philanthropic matters, at the same time serving on many corporate boards. In 1901, Gates designed the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, of which he was board president. He then designed the Rockefeller Foundation, 
becoming a trustee upon its creation in 1913. Gates even served as the president of the General Education Board after setting up the organization, which became the leading foundation in the field of education before subsequently merging into other Rockefeller family institutions. In 1913, a report written by Frederick T. Gates was published by the General Education Board in New York under the title, Occasional Papers No. 1, The Country School of Tomorrow. The report outlines what he calls a vision of the remedy, wherein he writes, Is there aught of remedy for this neglect of rural life? Let us at least yield ourselves to the gratifications of a beautiful dream that there is. In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own good will upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or of science. We are not to raise up from among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. Professor George Sylvester Counts of Columbia Teachers College, was strongly affiliated with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, as well as the Progressive Education Association, which he was invited to address after publishing two comparative studies of the Soviet education system, the New Russian Primer and the Soviet Challenge to America both published in 1931. His papers delivered over three separate speeches, which formed the core of the book, Dare the School Build a New Social Order, published in 1932, wherein Counts provides a clear examination of the cultural, social, and political purposes of education, and proponents the deliberate examination and navigation of teaching for political purposes. In his book, he claims, that if property rights are to be destroyed in industrial society, natural resources and all important forms of capital will have to be collectively owned. This clearly means that if democracy is to survive in the United States, it must abandon its individualistic affiliations in the sphere of economics. Within these limits, as I see it, our democratic tradition must of necessity evolve and gradually assume an essentially collectivistic pattern. The aforementioned Norman Dodd, chief investigator for the Reese Committee, had been granted access to the meeting minutes of the early meetings of the board of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace during his time investigating tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations. Dodd and his staff discovered that the Carnegie Endowment, from its very first meeting, had been concerning itself with how to shape society, and according to a hidden history report written by Russ Winter and published at Winter Watch, this foundation was chartered in 1906 by the Scottish-born magnate Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie's early large fortune was made in munitions, railroad, and the war industry during the American Civil War. He was a proponent of crony capitalism, with much disdain for the concept of laissez-faire free market economics, enjoying tariffs which directly benefited his industries. Carnegie believed that the concentration of capital into the hands of oligarchs was essential for societal progress and should be encouraged. Dodd sent a highly intelligent, capable lawyer by the name of Catherine Casey to examine the Carnegie Minutes, and because of the sheer size of the documents, he realized that Joseph Johnson, the current Carnegie COO, could not have known what all was contained in the records. Catherine Casey was originally skeptical of any wrongdoing on the part of these multi-million dollar tax-exempt philanthropic organizations. However, Casey became convinced as she read the minutes starting in 1908 
which discussed war as the best way to alter the lives and thinking of the American people. In 1909, it was discussed how to involve the U.S. in a war, citing that control of the State Department was essential. Later, after America entered World War I, a message was dispatched to President Woodrow Wilson to discourage an early end to the war. This could also explain Wilson's interest in the United Nations, then the League of Nations, the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Income Tax. In his final statement, Wilson shares a unique perspective of his time in office, which reads much like a confession, claiming, Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the U.S., in the field of commerce and manufacturing, are afraid of somebody or afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they had better not speak above a whisper in condemnation of it. After the war, it was determined that the key was alteration in the teaching and narrative of American history. Noted and respected historians like Charles and Mary Beard were approached, but they rejected the Foundation's overtures. The Guggenheim Foundation, on the other hand, agreed to supply fellowships to hand-picked historians who began to write history with a new slant and elusive perspective. The new texts and books were quickly picked up by schools who in turn received payoffs from the Guggenheim and Carnegie Foundations. The American Historical Association was captured by foundation money, and in 1934, a report was published under its auspices which concluded that the day of the individual in the United States had come to an end, and that the future would be characterized inevitably by some form of collectivism and an increase in the authority of the state. According to the congressional hearings in the second session of the 83rd Congress in 1954, the Reese Report itself revealed, the committee shed light on the large foundation's promotion of empiricism, centralized team research, large universities over small colleges, moral relativism, internationalism, and social engineering. With the arrival of the foundation's hand-picked puppet president, Franklin Roosevelt, the years 1933 to 1936 marked a change which was so drastic as to constitute a revolution. The meeting minutes reveal conclusively that the responsibility for the economic welfare of the American people had been transferred heavily to the executive branch of the federal government. The most heavily funded schools were Columbia, Harvard, University of Chicago, and Cal Berkeley who were in turn stacked with Frankfurt School cultural Marxists, and in time, their students. The stated objectives were to 1. Direct education in the United States toward an internationalist viewpoint and discredit the traditions to which it formerly had been dedicated. 2. Transform education into an instrument for social change. 3. Training individuals and servicing agencies to render advice to the executive branch of the federal government. 4. Decreasing the dependency of education upon the resources of the local community and freeing it from many of the natural safeguards inherent in American tradition. And 5. Financing experiments designed to determine the most effective means by which education could be pressed into service of a political nature. This oligarchical collectivist system resulted in the development and operation of a network that provided the U.S. with a national system of education under the tight control of organizations and persons little known to the American public. In his book, Foundations, Their Power and Influence, the general counsel to the Reese Committee, Rene Wormser, wrote, As general counsel, I was more interested in an emerging elite that has control of gigantic financial resources. An unparalleled amount of power is concentrated increasingly in the hands of an interlocking and self-perpetuating group. Unlike the power of corporate management, it is unchecked by stockholders. Unlike the power of government, it is unchecked by the people. 
Unlike the power of churches, it is unchecked by any firmly established canons of value. Wormser proceeded to point out, the interlocks between the trustees at Rand and the Ford, Rockefeller, and Carnegie Foundations were so numerous that the Reese Committee listed them in its report. In 1952 alone, when the chairman of the Rand Corporation was also the Ford Foundation president, Ford gave $1 million to Rand. The Council on Foreign Relations, another member of the international complex, financed both by the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, overwhelmingly propagandizes the globalist concept. This organization virtually became an agency of the government after the breakout of World War II. The Rockefeller Foundation had started and financed certain studies known as the War and Peace Studies, manned largely by associates of the Council on Foreign Relations. The State Department took over these studies and retained the major personnel which the CFR had supplied. According to Richard Heathen, in his brilliant documentary film Hidden Influence, The Rise of Collectivism, the Progressive Education Association was founded by American psychologist and philosopher John Dewey. In Dewey's vision of society, freedom only existed in the collective. It was the role of society to provide the conditions for his warped view of liberty. In Dewey's mind, you were only as free as society's provision for you. He was a collectivist, and as such saw society as a single cohesive organism instead of a collection of individuals pursuing their own, sometimes contradictory, interests. Dewey believed it was the role of the state to mold the minds and habits of children as opposed to the family. In the Humanist Manifesto, which was co-authored by John Dewey, he called for a socialized and cooperative economic order, as well as calling for the downfall of the Judeo-Christian moral order. John Dewey is known as the father of the progressive education movement for his role in ushering in a new paradigm in education, and in the December 1943 issue of their self-published magazine, Progressive Education, the Board of the Progressive Education Association printed an article discussing a meeting in Chicago the previous month with the following statement. We are writing now a credo by which our children must live. Your board unanimously proposes a broadening of the interests and program of this association to include the communities in which our children live. Yes, something happened around a table in Chicago. An organization which might have become mellowed with the years to futility in three short days again drew a blueprint for children of the world. John Dewey's vision would launch an additional movement called the American Humanist Association, which founded an American bi-monthly magazine published in Washington, D.C. called The Humanist. In its January 1983 issue of The Humanist magazine, an essay was published with the title, A Religion for a New Age, revealing another example of the humanist perspective of the role government schools should fulfill in modern American education. Author John Dunphy ends the essay by claiming that he is convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit, to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the educational level, preschool, daycare, or large state university. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, in the new faith of humanism, resplendent, 
in its promise of a world in which the never-realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. This conclusion perfectly reflects the mentality of the Marxist totalitarian collectivist. Throughout the Reese Committee's congressional investigation, Congressman Carol Reese discovered that many of the large foundations had been funding groups and initiatives promoting the Marxist-Leninist collectivist ideology of communism. And while testifying before the 83rd Congress, he gave a speech claiming that some of these activities and some of these institutions support efforts to overthrow our government and undermine our American way of life. Here lies the story of how communism and socialism are financed in the United States, where they get their money. It is the story of who pays the bills. There is evidence to show there is a diabolical conspiracy to back all of this. Its aim is the furtherance of socialism in the United States. The examples I have given of the use of tax-exempt funds are just indications of the kind of problems which a committee of the 83rd Congress should thoroughly explore. These examples do not involve just a grant of a few thousand dollars to a person who happens to be a communist, but involve giving millions of dollars for many years to pro-socialist and pro-communist propaganda projects that are vitally affecting our children and our schools and have a tremendous influence over the public mind. These foundations possessing huge sums of untaxed wealth seem to be dedicated to promoting specific views on matters such as the welfare state, United Nations, American foreign policy, the nature of the American economy, and so on, rather than presenting objective and unbiased examination of these issues. This reminded me of the four stages of ideological subversion described by Yuri Bezmenov, a Soviet journalist and former KGB asset, in an interview conducted by G. Edward Griffin in 1984 titled Soviet Subversion of the Free World Press where he explains the methods used for the gradual subversion of the political system of the United States. Yuri Alexandrovich Bezmyanov. Mr. Bezmyanov was born in 1939 in a suburb of Moscow. He was the son of a high-ranking Soviet army officer. He was educated in the elite schools inside the Soviet Union and became an expert in Indian culture and Indian languages. He had an outstanding career with Novosti, which was the, and still is, I should say, the press arm or the press agency of the Soviet Union. It turns out that this is also a front for the KGB. He escaped to the West in 1970 after becoming totally disgusted with the Soviet system, and he did this at great risk to his life. He certainly is one of the world's outstanding experts on the subject of Soviet propaganda and disinformation and active measures. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, activne meropriyatia in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology, 
is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials, economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kinds of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with the benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. Your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are, non, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, the, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was, he was already a Marxist. He was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki, he was killed by Amin, then Amin was killed by Babrak Karman with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The, the time bomb is ticking, but every second the disaster is coming closer and closer. Unlike myself, you will have nowhere to defect to. Term Frankfurt School, according to the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, describes the works of scholarship and the intellectuals who are the Institute for Social Research, 
an adjunct organization at the University of Frankfurt, founded in 1923 by Karl Grunberg, a Marxist professor of law at the University of Vienna. It was the first Marxist research center at a major German university and was funded through the largesse of the wealthy student Felix Weil. Weil's doctoral dissertation dealt with the practical problems of implementing socialism. Frankfurt School theorists applied Marxism to a radical interdisciplinary social theory. Max Horkheimer took over as director in 1930 and recruited many theorists, including Theodore Adorno, Eric Fromm, Herbert Marcus, and Walter Benjamin. The members of the Frankfurt School tried to develop a theory of society that was based on Marxism and Hegelian philosophy, but which also utilized the insights of psychoanalysis, sociology, existential philosophy, and other disciplines. They used basic Marxist concepts to analyze the social relations within capitalist economic systems. And this approach, which became known as critical theory, yielded influential critiques of large corporations and monopolies, the role of technology, the industrialization of culture, and the decline of the individual within capitalist society. Fascism and authoritarianism were also prominent subjects of study. And much of this research was published in the Institute's Journal for Social Research. A lot of the Institute's scholars were forced to leave Germany after Adolf Hitler's accession to power in 1933, and many found refuge in the United States. The Institute for Social Research thus became affiliated with Columbia University until 1949, when it returned to Frankfurt. Cultural Marxism and Critical Theory have been at the heart of much controversy, even in recent years with the official explanation typically reduced to the hollow accusation of a fringe, far-right, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory misrepresenting the Frankfurt School and the Fabian Socialists as being responsible for modern progressive movements, identity politics, and political correctness. The theory posits that there is an ongoing and intentional academic and intellectual effort to subvert Western society via a planned culture war that undermines the Christian values of traditional conservatism and seeks to replace them with culturally liberal values. Apart from any so-called conspiratorial usage, the phrase cultural Marxism has been used occasionally in accepted academic scholarship to mean the study of how the production of culture is used by elite groups to maintain their dominance. Framing this legitimate line of inquiry as a fringe far-right conspiracy is clearly a pathetic attempt to throw us off the scent as we draw closer and closer to unmasking the sophisticated machinations of our ruling class. As previously mentioned, Max Horkheimer became the director of the Frankfurt School in 1930 and was born into a wealthy German Orthodox Jewish family. He became a philosopher and sociologist who was famous for his work in critical theory and helped facilitate the rise of cultural Marxism in America as a member of the Frankfurt School. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, while Horkheimer was the director of the Institute, he was also professor of social philosophy at the University of Frankfurt from 1930 to 1933, and again from 1949 to 1958. In between those periods, he would lead the institute in exile, primarily in America. As a philosopher, he is best known for his work during the 1940s, including Dialectic of Enlightenment, which was co-authored with Theodore Adorno. While deservedly influential, dialectic of enlightenment should not be separated from the context of Horkheimer's work as a whole. Especially important in this regard are the writings from the 1930s, which were largely responsible for developing the epistemological and methodological orientation of Frankfurt School critical theory. This work both influenced his contemporaries, including Adorno and Herbert Marcus, and has had an enduring influence on critical theory's later practitioners. 
Max Horkheimer was one of the leading Marxists of the Frankfurt School, which undeniably pioneered cultural Marxism while under his direct influence. And to reinforce this point, we invoke the words from the man himself who openly stated, The revolution won't happen with guns. Rather, it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. We will gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move towards universal egalitarianism. None of this has been left to interpretation. They have directly outlined their vision of global society for generations, an open secret. It's what H.G. Wells referred to as the open conspiracy blueprints for a world revolution. So what is cultural Marxism? According to Hidden Influence, the rise of collectivism, it began as a translation of Marxist economic theory to the area of culture. The idea of cultural Marxism came out of the failure of Marxist theory. Marxist theory stated that if Europe was ever entangled in a great war, the working class or proletariat would rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie government, and all of Europe would be engulfed in a Marxist revolution which would end in the development of a Marxist utopia. Following the Great War, Marxist theorists came together in an effort to explain this failure, and in 1923, the Institute for Social Research was formed in Frankfurt, Germany. Initially, it was to be called the Institute for Marxism but they thought it best to camouflage their Marxist identity. The Institute for Social Research eventually became known as the Frankfurt School, and after prolonged discussion and study, the scholars of the Frankfurt School decided that the reason for the lack of popular Marxist uprisings was the inherent corrupting influence of capitalism and Western civilization. Western materialism, according to the Frankfurt School, had blinded the masses to their true class interests. They decided the only way to achieve their Marxist revolution was to tear down Western civilization and its individualist culture. To that end, they created what they called critical theory. Critical theory begins with the conclusion that Western civilization is inherently oppressive. This narrative is used to pit various social groups against each other in order to ultimately destabilize Western society. An article published at Medium.com and given the title, The Marxist Long March into the Age of Identity Politics, perfectly describes how Marxism helped shape Western culture in the 20th century and provides a commentary on the Marxist ideas that inform the culture war in the West today. According to the article, Following the successful Bolshevik Revolution in Russia of 1917, the Communist International, Comintern, questioned why there had been no subsequent socialist revolutions in sophisticated and advanced industrialized European countries like Britain and Germany. In 1922, on Lenin's initiative, European communists organized a meeting at the Marx-Engels Institute in Moscow. Present at the meeting, among others, were Marxist theoretician George Lukacs and German political activist Willy Munzenberg. Following the meeting in Moscow, the Comintern concluded culture and the media were the primary tools for oppressing the masses and the terrain upon which Marxists must in future fight for revolution in the West. They had determined advanced countries would not adopt socialism by economics alone, and the success of the revolution depended on a culture war. In 1923, German-Argentine Marxist Felix Weil officially established and funded the Institute of Social Research in Frankfurt, known commonly as the Frankfurt School. The group created the school to clarify its revolutionary cultural program and establish how best to execute its application. Other notable members of the school included Herbert Marcus, Theodore Adorno, Eric Fromm, Leo Lowenthal, and Jürgen Habermas, all of whom were academics steeped in the Marxist tradition but brought to the school distinct theoretical contributions. In 1930, German philosopher and sociologist Max Horkheimer assumed control of the school 
and began mixing the theories of Sigmund Freud with the political economics of Karl Marx. The incorporation of other intellectual traditions such as Freudian psychoanalysis, feminism, and existentialism into orthodox Marxism would eventually become known as neo-Marxism. The growing threat of Hitler's Germany eventually drove the school out of Europe. Its members fled to the United States, taking positions in major universities. In 1934, the Frankfurt School was reborn at Columbia University. Universities became the institutions from which the school intended to launch its cultural transformation. Turning away from Marxist doctrine, rather than attempting to organize the working class, the school instead focused on breaking down traditional social ties. It was a long-term project, based on subverting institutions like the family, education, media, sex, and popular culture. The school spread its radical ideas to campuses across the United States and beyond. Marx and Freud combined was the revolutionary ticket that would transform Western civilization in the mid-20th century. In the 1930s, Horkheimer had posed the question, who would replace the working class as the new vanguards of the Marxist revolution? It wasn't until the 1960s that Herbert Marcus answered the question by proposing a coalition of minorities. Social movements which railed against the establishment gave the school a practical vehicle to release its revolutionary plan into the mainstream. For more than 50 years, the ideas that emanated from the school have had a profound impact on Western culture, fueling conflict with the established order as its influence grew. The school advocated destructive, negative criticism of every sphere of life, designed to undermine Western civilization and crush what they saw as the oppressive order of the ruling class. The group continued the work of the classical Marxists by cultural means, intending for their policies to spread like a virus. So critical was the Frankfurt School of Western civilization, it would brand its analysis critical theory. Today, Entire academic departments and humanities programs in the United States and Europe are dedicated to studying critical theory or its variants. Many of the students taught by the school became teachers and professors themselves in the U.S. and Europe, who in turn taught another generation of teachers and professors and so on. At Occidental College in the U.S., where Barack Obama was once a student, the website proudly boasts the college currently instructs students in the principles of Marxism, psychoanalysis, the Frankfurt School, deconstruction, critical race studies, queer theory, feminist theory, post-colonial theory. Others educated by the Frankfurt School found positions in the media and government. This process of institutional entryism it's what Italian Marxist philosopher and communist politician Antonio Gramsci referred to as the long march through the institutions. No study on the changing face of Marxism and its evolution would be complete without a consideration of postmodern neo-Marxism. Two intellectual traditions with a challenging and complex relationship and a topic to tackle another time. For now, Let's take a brief look at how Marxism has evolved in the present political and cultural moment by turning our attention to the age of identity politics. Identity politics is a political approach and form of analysis that views the world in terms of the power relations and struggles which split society into hostile and antagonistic groups of oppressors and the oppressed. It has a genealogy and political discourse that goes back to the 1970s and gained significant cultural relevance during the last decade, particularly in the U.S. and U.K. Identitarians wage culture wars in the name of social justice and intersectionality over some of the most divisive issues of the time. Sexual orientation, gender, race, and transsexuality being some of the most contentious. These wars play out in our workplaces, universities, schools, homes, and political arenas. Continuing in the traditions of the Frankfurt School, the overwhelming number of Marxists today recognize 
Identity politics is the most expedient terrain through which to deliver their views into the popular consciousness in the mainstream. Ever the opportunists, Marxists seek out the most advantageous identity groups to serve as agents for emancipation and to continue the fight for socialism. The identity group with the latest claim or making the most noise at any given time is where Marxists will toil hardest, directing the target group's false consciousness, making them aware of their victimization at the hands of the capitalist system. As culture is ever-changing, this is an infinitely exhausting exercise for the Marxist. One moment they might prioritize the feminist movement, the next an ethnic minority, and yet another, gay rights activists. Now Marxists are working hard to establish their influence in the LGBTQ community and the climate change movement. Socialist Workers' Party, with their papers and branded placards, will never be far away from a gathering of gender activists or environmentalists. The legacy of the Marxist culture war in the 20th century is so deeply rooted in Western society today. Just scratch the surface of the cultural zeitgeist and you'll soon find its red interior. Look at a popular movement closely enough and you'll discover evidence of a Marxist plan to co-opt it. So effective has Marxism's long march through the institutions been. Marxist ideas have become common sense or hegemonic. Many millions of people in the West take it for granted, not realizing they've been subject to decades of Marxist ideological indoctrination. Mm -hmm.